This is Akpod. I'm Erin Ransford, and I'm here with our host, Dr. Ismail Nabil. Dr. Nabil is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, serves on the ACOM Board of Directors, and chairs ACOM's Council on OEM Science. Our guests today are Dr. Brett Perkison and Ms. Cynthia Hernandez. Ms. Hernandez is the National Training Director for the Resilience Force, an organization that serves as a voice for workers who respond to climate disasters in the United States, many of whom are immigrants. She began her career as a researcher and instructor at Florida International University's Center for Labor and Research Studies, investigating the intersection of labor and immigration with a focus on wage theft. She also served as the executive director for the South Florida American Federation of Labor, where she led several labor and community coalitions to win higher wages and benefits for low-income families. Dr. Perkison is an assistant professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston, Texas, and is the program director for the Occupational and Environmental Medicine Residency Program in Houston. He is board certified in both family medicine and occupational and environmental medicine, and is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. One of his main research interests is improving the health and safety of construction workers in the immediate aftermath of natural disasters. Today is December 21st, 2023. On today's episode, we discuss flood zone workers who respond to climate-related natural disasters and the issues they face. Hello, Dr. Nabil, and welcome, Dr. Perkison and Cynthia. Hi, Erin, Brad, and Cynthia. It's a pleasure to see you all. So happy holidays and happy new year. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm always surprised and in awe by the work that goes around in this country, particularly after flooding events or hurricanes. There's a lot of destruction that we see with these big climate events across the nation. And I know that your organization, Resilience Force, goes around the country and help these communities rebuild. I happen to get to know these folks, these workers who have been rebuilding this country for a while. I'm really excited to hear the story of how it all started, this whole idea of resilience force. And now you rebuild counties and cities who have been devastated by climate change events across the nation. Yeah. Well, thank you again for having me. So Resilience Force really grew out of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And our executive director, Saket Sony, was an organizer shortly after Hurricane Katrina had made landfall and realized that there was a lot of injustices happening to the workers. And many of the workers were actually coming in from other parts of the world, mostly from Central and South America and coming under different visas are also undocumented. So really the idea of Resilience Force grew out of Hurricane Katrina. And fast forward to when I came aboard, which was 2018 after Hurricane Michael made landfall in Panama City, devastated the area. And we began organizing workers and really learning about some of the working conditions that they were facing. So there are workers who speak different languages, comes from different countries. Some are undocumented, don't have legal status in this country. But they all come together and get deployed to these very scary situations. How does that work? Where do you start to organize and help in rebuilding the communities that you work in? Well, I think it's also important to say that many of these resilience workers are actually climate refugees themselves. 
So for example, I'll mention Mariano. Mariano is from Honduras. And I believe in the early 1990s, when Hurricane Mitch landed in Honduras and his basically his whole farm was destroyed and his whole livelihood. So Mariano came to the U.S. really to look for a better life, more economic opportunities. And he actually helped rebuild Hurricane Katrina. And since then, he's rebuilt and worked after 12 disasters. So there's many stories like Mariano who have had to leave their countries, whether it be because of climate disasters themselves or you know political situations. And I'll talk more about other members who have had to leave their countries because of that. But essentially, these are workers oftentimes leaving their families, their children behind to come and rebuild homes for other people. They are in some ways, hurricane chasers or storm chasers. You know, it's not just hurricanes, but also floods and tornadoes and wildfires. And they arrive at the city or the county, the town where the destruction has happened. And they basically help rebuild those communities. Oftentimes, you know, they face incredibly harsh conditions. They are going into disaster zones. So a disaster zone is just that. They don't have potable water. They don't have access to food because essentially many of these disaster zones become food deserts. And also they lack shelter. And for some, the only shelter that they have is actually if they are arriving by a car, that becomes their shelter. And these individuals might speak different language. They might have different expertise in their home countries. And they come in here to do mostly construction work or rebuilding. How do you guys connect with this community? So we basically are on the ground. We have an organizing team that goes and scouts shortly after disasters. And we basically begin talking to workers. Oftentimes, workers will gather in a central location, whether typically it's at a Home Depot or a Lowe's. And so they will gather to look for work in these areas. And so we come and provide them with resources. We do mini trainings, we call them, or trainings on the ground, inform them of their rights. I think that's something really important for many people who are coming from another country. They don't often know what their rights are. So, you know, for example, we teach them how to use a contract so that they are not victims to wage theft. We talk to them about the deferred action if an employer is retaliatory against them and and also many health and safety trainings as well, giving them PPE and showing them how to use it. So the challenge has been immense. You said these locations that are devastated by hurricanes or natural disasters don't have enough resources. Some are called food deserts at the time when the devastation occurs. There's no lodging or place to stay. How do you guys deal with that for these workers? Yeah, it's, I mean, oftentimes it's very difficult because, as I mentioned, there are no shelters and oftentimes workers are sleeping in their cars or even sleeping outside. In Florida, in particular, after the hurricanes, you know, there is a huge shortage of affordable housing. And so the best thing to do for workers and for communities that have been impacted is to help rebuild those communities as fast as possible so that they can bring the families back and regenerate a tax base for those local economies. And Brett, you, you've been involved with Katrina and then Harvey. What is your experience with these workers? Yes, it really parallels that experience. It's oftentimes the hurricane season is in the summertime, and so they're working in, in really hot, humid conditions. There's a lack of water, a lack of coordination. It's very disorganized. And so Harvey was very extensive. Many square miles of neighborhoods were affected by that. And so workers had to be 
transport it in. They oftentimes, in this kind of disorganized situation, it makes them more vulnerable to effects of wage theft. We had some incidences in Houston after Harvey where workers were threatened because there was concern by the homeowners that they were trespassing on their property. So really just a very disorganized situation that makes them very vulnerable in a lot of different ways. How do you account for this harsh working conditions and then potential injuries to these individuals that are sometimes working on the roof or doing work on the pavement, rebuilding communities? What happens when they get injured or they're unable to provide for their families? What we see is that there's a lack of access to healthcare in that area because that's part of the infrastructure that's been destroyed. And as Cynthia mentioned, a lot of times they're undocumented, they're concerned about going to law enforcement to seek help. So a lot of times these injuries and illnesses don't get adequately treated. And so it can be even more devastating. So really a lack of infrastructure and, and setup there to help them. And Cynthia, how are your organization sort of help these individuals when they are in that predicament? Sure. I wanted to add two stories that come to mind. One story is of Mario, who was from Mexico and was working on roofs. And I, I should say that the majority of the accidents in the reconstruction industry and construction industry happen on roofs. And oftentimes contractors do not train workers properly on harnesses and actually don't even give them harnesses. So that is something that we see very, very often. And because there's no enforcement mechanisms, It's just, you know, ripe for abuses, ripe for accidents. It essentially becomes like the wild, wild west. So Mario was from Mexico working in Panama City after Hurricane Michael, working on a roof. And it began to sprinkle and the contractor basically should have pulled the workers down. Anytime it starts to rain, you know, it, it becomes a very dangerous situation when you're on a roof. And instead he said, hurry up, we, we need to finish this job so we can go to the next one. So Mario was not wearing a harness, so he fell, broke his ankle. And unfortunately the contractor did not even want to call 911. So he basically what he did was he dropped him off at the nearest hospital and Mario and the contractor never saw each other again. So my organization met Mario. He had been living on the street for some time with a broken ankle, obviously was not working. We were able to get him medical attention. We found a workers' compensation attorney and eventually were able to get compensation for Mario and for his injury. Another story of more recently of Rodolfo, who was from Venezuela, he's a political asylee from Venezuela, was working in Lee County after Hurricane Ian in Florida just last year. Very similar situation. The contractor basically gave him a shoddy ladder. So he was doing siding work. He climbed up the ladder and the ladder broke, also injured his leg. And same situation, didn't want to call 911, basically dropped him off at the hospital. And we are now currently you know, working with an attorney, a workers' compensation attorney, to help Rodolfo seek medical attention as well as damages for the amount of time that he has suffered. So what we do is we basically, in addition to organizing We provide legal assistance and we connect workers with local attorneys to assist. So how does workers' compensation work for undocumented workers? That's a good question. And I know it varies by state to state. I'm not an attorney, but what I know in Florida is that ultimately the primary contractor is responsible for all of the workers. And in this case here in Florida, not only are we able to hopefully get compensation through workers' comp, but also we were able to get OSHA to find the subcontractor, in this case, for not properly training the worker and having a shoddy ladder in the first place on the work site. 
And so what you describe is a very difficult terrain to navigate. You have contractors, subcontractors, FEMA is involved in these disastrous situations. Where do you connect with the federal agencies or have a conversation with contractors? How do you help the worker and these workers get jobs? So these workers typically will get jobs on their own, and we come in typically when there is a violation of some sort or an accident. And what we do is we help the workers file complaints through the different federal agencies and connect them with on-the-ground legal assistance as well. How do the workers find you? So, you know, we have a network of a little over 2,000 resilience workers, and a lot of it is through word of mouth or when we're on the ground organizing disaster zones. And you are involved in training these workers as well in, in safety protocols, particularly showing them how to use harnesses, how to do roofing work. Yeah, how is that experience in terms of their eagerness to learn or understand this nuance? Yeah, you know, previous to this work at Resilience Force, when I was a researcher at FIU, I worked on a research project looking at the health and safety working conditions of particularly Latino workers in South Florida. And, you know, there is this big, I think, idea that Latino culture is not necessarily into the safety. We like to do things fast and quickly. And, you know, there's the, I would say, the macho culture around that. And it does reflect in some way when you look at the injury rates across the country. They are particularly high among Latino workers. But in my experience, you know, the workers that I train, the resilience workers, they are certainly eager to learn about their health and safety, how to do things properly, because at the end of the day, they want to go back home and be able to sustain their families, be able to come back home without injuries. And I think where I see the biggest disconnect is contractors who don't know the federal standards, who are not aware of OSHA standards. For example, contractors who don't provide trainings, who do not provide PPE, and the workers who may not know that, hey, my contractor is supposed to not only train me on how to use this equipment and provide me with the PPE, but also, we're supposed to have potable water on site. So there's really, I think, a, a lack of awareness of the rights. And you can see, you know, in some of these trainings, like the aha moment for some, like, oh, wow. So I could have, you know, asked for this and this. And and it's really also very empowering because then they are empowered with this knowledge to go out and do their jobs in a professional manner and in a safe manner. And so the challenge is not only to understand the work, but also different geographical states that has different legal requirements. And again, the challenges that these workforce are meeting from wildfires to hurricanes to different calamities that are impacting our nation. How do you prepare for this, at least during hurricane season? What is the game plan? Yeah, that's a great question because we know that hurricanes, wildfires, flooding, they're only going to increase in frequency and intensity, right? We see this year after year. And so what Resilience Force is doing is we're creating training centers in three different locations throughout the country to really prepare this workforce for what our country really needs because we see the need for this workforce. And that definitely will help minimize and mitigate some of the challenges that these workforce faces. Brett, you've been working on a project that kind of educate these workers on health and safety issues. What's going on? Yeah, so 
I think Cynthia's just given some great cases of people who had personal experiences and it uh, motivated them to trying to solve these problems. And I think my own experiences here in Houston over the years of different hurricanes is looking for similar solutions. And that is the need to organize logistics and coordination. And so the app that I'm working on, it's funded through the NIEHS, National Institute of Environmental Health Services Institute. And it is a small business grant that we're partnering with the software company to develop a a e-learning device, an app that involves pre-deployment education for workers on some of these health and safety needs, deployment logistics to help workers find shelter, lodging, supplies, security, help them to negotiate wage theft, and then post-deployment after the storm to provide medical surveillance to sort of pick up on any symptoms, medical symptoms they might have developed as a result of their deployment. And so I saw some precursors to that developed in Houston, and then we're just sort of formalizing that and through our close partnership with Resilience Force, we're being able to, through iterative feedback, really develop that, use the workers to guide us about what they really need. And we're really learning that the issue with security really has come to the forefront. Our original versions did not have that. And so I'm excited about it. We're trying to make a product that is useful for worker advocacy groups like Resilience Force to coordinate workers. It would be useful for contractors and for large companies, but most importantly, for the workers themselves. And I think other projects like this, you mentioned this is sort of happening on a national level, that I think for our audience, because I am an occupational environmental medicine physician, our audience out there that have employees in whatever capacity, in whatever company or line of business they're in, they need to be prepared to be able to look ahead, to realize that this future is here and to prepare their workers on an organized, systematic fashion and like we're doing in the construction business. We are really excited about this app. You know, I had an idea of this app back in Panama City back in 2018, 2017. So this is really exciting to be able to partner with Brett and his team and with you, Dr. Nabil, as well. It's going to be an incredible, valuable tool. And as Brett mentioned, not only as a learning tool, but also as a way for us to communicate with workers. So when workers find themselves in these situations, in dangerous situations, they will be able to reach out to us uh, rather than, you know, wait for us to be on the ground or, or connect with us. So really excited about our partnership. It's definitely an exciting work. It's been going on for as five years. And I think, Brett, you and I have a chance to look at the app during COVID years, where we also thought about the infectious disease impacting these workforces and how we can address that. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you is doing this course of work while developing the app, what are the things that you learned more about the workforce that you did not know before? So much, you know, it's a really, really a lot. It's been an eye-opening experience. One that people are coming in is mentioned from all over Central and South America. And so there's a lot of different levels of literacy and that we need to really make this available for people using a lot of audio prompts and videos, making it very user-friendly. The security issues are so, so important. And to make it really practical, we want to try to make this as practical as we can. So Cynthia mentioned the workers, they're looking for jobs. I mean, they're looking for work. That's why they're here. So if we can have features that help them identify employment on this, I think that's important. We have to provide kind of motivation for them to naturally want to use this app. And so these carrots that will help them with their employment that go along with really implementing the health and safety standards that are very important. I think if we can get that right balance in it, that it can be very powerful and really understanding workers and their needs is important. 
you know, the last thing is that we've really been received positively by them. They really appreciate what we're doing. They've opened up to us. It's been easy to recruit people for our different pilot projects that we've done. And we've only gotten positive feedback and patience with all the glitches that we go along with as we develop it. So very rewarding experience. And I feel, you know, that I'm continuing to learn things about them and their needs every day. Absolutely. And Cynthia, I heard that you have a Netflix documentary on Brazilian sports that's been featured. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? The documentary is called Immigration Nation, and it is on Netflix. A resilience Force is featured in episode four. Basically, the filmmakers followed our work in Panama City after Hurricane Michael. And really, all the different episodes highlight basically the need for immigration reform. And so it tells the stories of different immigrants in the country and the work that they do, which is so essential. And I think the overall message is that immigrant workers, undocumented workers are really a huge pillar to the economy of this country. And without them, uh, our economy would collapse. Yeah, so if I give you the magic wand... You have the ability to change the things that you have right now for these workforce, for these individuals who bravely encounter all these challenges. What's the first thing you want to do? I'll just start by saying Resilience Force, we're actually in the process of creating an apprenticeship program through the Department of Labor. And so in an ideal world, we would be able to have a pathway to citizenship for resilience workers. So they would go through uh, a training apprenticeship program. Many obviously are already experts in the field, so they would be able to advance, but many of them would also be able to upskill. And so the idea behind the training program is really to ensure that their work is being safely done. In an ideal world, with my magic wand, we would basically create a pathway for these workers to become either U.S. residents or citizens, or even just have a legal working permit that they could work under and without fear. Because the truth is, you know, I've already mentioned what it is like to work in these disaster zones, right? We didn't really talk much about the wildfires, but, you know, there's smoke, there's wind, there's mold, there's unscrupulous employers who don't pay. And when you add to all of these harsh working conditions and you, you add another level of fear of not being able to drive without the fear of someone stopping you and maybe possibly being deported and separated from your families, it becomes a very, very difficult job. And so we need these workers to do this if we want to rebuild our communities in a faster way. And really, we need this workforce to basically rebuild our communities. We have to, in some ways, be able to provide certain things to make these jobs better and much more equitable for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. The recent years have shown that the climate events have been increasing in frequency. How is Resilient Forces dealing with this frequent disasters that we're seeing across the country? How do you prepare your workforce for this unending challenge that you guys are facing? So we are partnering with different partners around the country. I mentioned that we are really focusing on creating three training hubs around the country. And what we really want to do is train these workers to be year-round climate resilience workers. So when they're not working, for example, after a hurricane, they're working in California to mitigate wildfires through vegetation management. So we actually have a training program and training partners in Sonoma County, California, where we are training agricultural workers to learn how to mitigate vegetation adaptation and to basically prevent wildfires from happening, which also includes home hardening and weatherization of buildings. 
And in Florida, we're partnering with another organization where these workers will also be trained on how to install solar and energy efficient systems so that this work really becomes year round work and creating good paying jobs from it. Well, fascinating view on what's been changing across the nation. And I think it begs the question, physicians, OEM specialists should be looking at this workforce and trying to understand the jobs that they do and the impact they have on their health. How can we address that holistically? One of the challenges I think, Brett, you might have experienced that is, for example, Hurricane Harvey impacting Houston. There's a lot of factors in Houston area that can impact these workers' health might be different from Louisiana or other places. So I think the interesting, important thing that we have to highlight here is not only we need to prepare the workforce, we also need to improve the education of these individuals about health and safety in different geographical areas. And I know, Brett, you have worked in that with Hurricane Harvey. Do you suggest additional options for these workforce to be more prepared for these disasters? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is the more organized and methodical we can approach these disasters, the better off we'll be. Because there is repetition to the sequence of events about when an area is first damaged, the health protection and the mitigation that you need to do in the first few days after the event, and then in the weeks afterwards, and then the months afterwards. It's an ongoing thing. There's still people that haven't recovered from Harvey, although it's been over five years. And so we have to think about acute and chronic effects. And so more coordination with public and private enterprises and using devices like Pocket Arc that can pull in data to tell workers and to tell the population, affected populations, about, as you mentioned, individual health hazards. There are some things that sheetrock causing respiratory irritation is universal. Mold, falling off roofs, some of those things are universal, but there are unique issues within each community. There are Superfund sites that are often disrupted in a storm, and so they have specific toxins that they might be exposed to. In wildfires, there's specific buildings or other manufacturing that there's specific chemicals. And so the more knowledge we have and being able to disseminate that and to the right level of education so that the toxicologist can communicate that to the public health person who can communicate that to the contractor, to the workers, And to do that, the safer we'll have environment for mitigating that and the faster we'll be able to get these communities back on their feet and back in a prosperous business community economy and for our OEM colleagues to to have their employees get back to work in their businesses. You know, one one thing is when people are affected by these, the faster they get their homes cleaned up, the more the insurance adjusters can come in and estimate to do the repair in both commercial and residential. So. Win-win for all parties here if the homes get damaged, get assessed, and then the homeowners can come back to their homes and the workers can rebuild the communities. So Cynthia, a final word in terms of how can we help? As I mentioned, we're really excited to partner with Brett and Dr. Nabil on Pocket Arc. And what we hope to accomplish is just that, you know, a better organized, better trained workforce. It's much more professionalized so that we can do the work much more effectively, which is a win-win for everyone. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for all of your excellent work and for taking the time to have a conversation with us today. Thank you. Thank you. 